From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Welcome back to another episode of My Capital Idea. This is Mike Williams and the Defenders of Capitalism Project. I'm joined in studio once again by my partner in crime, Mitch Whitus. Mitch, I appreciate the uh, idea that you have for today's podcast. It's an interesting topic. It's definitely relevant with regard to capitalism, relevant with regard to politics, relevant with regard to a subject that you and I are both passionate about, uh, finance, investments, you know, banking, those kinds of things. The whole concept of money uh, motivates both of us. And so I'm really glad you came up with this idea. Say hey to everybody. Hey, well, yeah, thanks for having me back, Mike. I'm really excited about today's topic because I think despite all the tribalism that we've spoken about, Today's topic really illustrates how bad ideas still come from both sides of the political no aisle. No kidding, that's for sure. And it's funny how we sometimes have to address the right, the people who are you know nominally pro-free markets. Supposedly. Yeah, and so this is another example of that. And you've titled this Josh Hawley to the Rescue, right? Yeah, that's right. So is that Josh Hawley or Bernie or AOC to the rescue, or can you tell the difference? Some of those people you mentioned, they have introduced similar types of bills that we're about to talk about, but if you're you're not familiar with our friend Senator Josh Hawley, you may know him as a Republican from Missouri, um, and he's that very brave populist hero who challenged the 2020 election results and then bravely ran away when those same protesters that he gave the, the fist to in solidarity actually stormed the Capitol. <laughs> then he wanted nothing to do with him. Then he wanted Is nothing to do with him. Is that being fair to him? I saw that video too. I don't know much about it. I mean, I've heard people say, wait, you're you're only taking certain clips. Although that, that's been done, you know, ad infinitum with regard to the January 6th stuff, right? Yeah. People taking clips and saying, see, this is proving this or that. But is it fair to Holly? Was he really running from the same crowd that he had egged on earlier in the day? <laughs> well, who knows? I mean, if he was consistent, he would have stayed right there in the Senate chamber and welcomed him in, right? That's right. That's right. So he's a brave man. And now he's got another brave brave crusade that he is going to help us with. What's that brave crusade? I kind of hinted at it. It has to do with interest rates and uh, maybe credit card debt and lending generally, but uh, kind of give us the lay of the land, the context of this uh, initiative by Mr. Hall or Senator Hawley. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So this is a really serious issue. And I know we've been kind of <laughs> making light of it a little bit here at the beginning of our podcast, but for the first time, ever in 2023, uh, Americans' credit card, household credit card debt has exceeded $1 trillion. So, you know, that's a ton of money for people like you or I just to to owe. And according to this site that helps with personal finance called NerdWallet, they did a study, and they think about 47%, so about half of U.S. households are estimated to have credit card debt. You know, it's a huge number of people, right? Tens and tens of millions of people. So along with that, what we're seeing in the rising interest rate environment is that the average credit card annual percentage rate the interest rate people are paying on these credit cards, it's well over 20%. Um, And I think in the past few months, I've seen it might be up 23, 24%. So you are, you know, as a borrower from credit card companies, you would be paying a lot of money in interest if you're carrying money over on credit cards month over month. Yeah, it's insane. It's insane. So what Josh Hawley has done, and there is precedent for this 
set forth from some of the senators you've discussed, Senator Warren, Bernie Sanders, AOC, they've all discussed similar types of things. So Holly, this year in September, introduced the Capping Credit Card Interest Rate Act. And the idea is that it caps the APR, the annual percentage rate of credit cards, at 18%. And this has overwhelming support by the way, based on surveys sure. that some organizations have done. People like this idea of capping credit card rates. Popular from a populist. That's right. So but I, I should back up a little bit here and maybe even do a disclaimer. I mentioned that both of us are passionate about finance. Uh, you have some incredible experience academically and otherwise in terms of consulting people in business and finance. And I have an investment advisory firm and we're not giving any advice. I'm not giving any financial advice. I have a whole nother podcast, a whole nother business that's set up to, to talk to people about their money and finance. So anything I, I or you say, this is not giving formal financial planning advice or investment advice or anything like that. I just said that you know paying 20% on a credit card is insane and you agreed. Now there's a context where that might be appropriate, right? Well, and I think we're about to get into that a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, I, I'm not giving advice either. We're giving advice on being a defender of capitalism. That's right. That's right? exactly right. <laughs> and generally, you know, generally it's not smart to pay that much in interest. You're, you're digging a big hole. And most people know that. It's hard to fathom someone uh, having so little financial knowledge that they don't really get that that's, that's a difficult thing. But there are people out there who don't, who, who don't really understand the math of it. And that's, that's one of the things I want to touch on. I'm not sure if you want to go down this route or not, but I wanted to touch on, you know, why do we have a culture that, first of all, gets a, ourselves into such hawk? in general. Yeah. Why are people in some ways relatively ignorant with regard to how damaging that can be for their financial future? And one of my answers is that, you know, we don't have a, we certainly don't have a government that sets, sets a good example, right? Yeah. We're literally trillions of dollars in debt. So it's kind of like, you know, people have this blase attitude of how much they can borrow and the consequences. Well, and I think that gets a little bit to a, a Dave Ramsey style argument, right? And I'm not always a big Dave Ramsey fan. I don't think he always gives great advice for me personally, but I've read some of his work, some of his books, and this is what he talks about, right? How did we get here culturally? Why are people not good with money? Yeah. And he is not a fan of gover the government and how the government like you said, has spent and encourages a lot of these self-destructive behaviors of citizens. You know, it's interesting. I, I might as well do a little cross-promotion more than I just did. Uh, Taylor and I, on our Altius Financial podcast, uh, did a whole session on Dave Ramsey. Mm -hmm. And the, the title of it was, Why Do Millennials Hate Dave Ramsey? Because <laughs> she said that just out of the blue one day. This is a, a financial advisor I work with. And she said, she said, you know, yeah, the millennials, uh, we can't stand Dave Ramsey. And I'm like, what do you mean? I think he's great. I mean, I agree with you. I, there's some things about him socially that... You know, he has certain certain pieces of advice that are uh, different than I might give somebody, but I actually think he's probably the best one that's, you know, like a, a national media figure or has a show on the radio or whatever. Generally, I think he has good financial advice, especially because this issue of debt management. He realizes that oftentimes that's the source of people's financial problems and, yeah. and in, you know, not being able to develop any kind of financial securities because they just keep getting into debt, not taking it seriously. And, and I think to your point, you know, that from a from a cultural standpoint, not only do we have a government who who does that, but people aren't educated well enough to think about the long-term consequences. So they think they think emotionally like, what do I want right now and how is this going to make me feel right now versus, you know, what'll make me happy in the long term. Well, exactly. And oh, oh I make a great you know, make great money right now, just got a promotion. So I'll go out and buy a boat and get a new house, new car. 
And Dave Ramsey talks a lot about how that's not necessarily a good idea, you know? Right, exactly. So, yeah, culturally, I think there's a lot to talk about there. I want to go to what Josh Hawley said about this bill, because this is what Josh Hawley is getting to, that we don't want people who are in debt to pay these extortionate fees, right? People have their boats and their cars, their houses, you know, not necessarily all of those things on a credit card, but... His whole, I think, argument is we don't want these companies to be committing usury. So what he said on Fox Business in September, he said, quote, you can't, you just can't convince me that these credit cards and credit card companies need to make more than 18% profit in order to be making plenty of cash. So they're doing great right now. They're making money hand over fist. They're really making gobs of money off people's misery. So that's what he said. So basically, they're charging too much. Don't they already have enough money? You know, isn't 18% <laughs> enough? Yeah. And so that's the argument he's going out there with. As I mentioned overwhelming public support for capping interest rate fees, which makes sense in a culture where a lot of Americans have credit cards. And I want to take a step back, Mike, before we talk about the merits or lack thereof Holly's proposal. And I just want to talk a little bit about the history of interest rates. Sure. Not academically, not to get, not like we're in a university course, but I think that might help us understand a little bit more about some of the arguments that I think you might make about why Josh Hawley's bill may be good or bad. And, and I want to talk a little bit more about what is an interest rate, because I don't know that that's necessarily obvious. We hear the, the phrase a lot, but I'm wondering if you could tell us, Mike, what, what are we talking about when we mean interest rate? Yeah, no, I think that's that's a good lead in to talk about this from a, a bigger, broader perspective, and certainly from the standpoint of someone who uh, needs to or wants to understand markets and capitalism, especially capitalism as a moral system and as a system that actually allows for human thriving. I mean, an interest rate is a price. Uh, it's the price of money, in a sense. Or in, in another way, you can look at it as the price of time. In finance, we talk about this concept of the time value of money and time preferences. And so whether a person uh, is going to use and spend their money right now, or if they're going to defer their consumption or defer spending and invest it or save it or have that money working for them. In, fi in fact, there's a great book. I often recommend this to, to people. It's kind of like written in parables, but it's called The Richest Man in Babylon. I don't know if you've heard of it. Oh, it's a great book. Yeah. yeah. And he, he talks about, you know, how, how your money, you want your money to, to reproduce, multiply, be fruitful and multiply, right? And, and the way that money does that is you put it to work. Uh, that means you invest it or you save it and, and, you, and you defer gratification. You delay consumption. That's what savings investing is, is you're saying, no, I don't need to use this money right now. I'm going to use it in the future. I don't need to use it right now. I'm, I want to build my wealth and build more financial security and then there comes the idea of, well, okay, if I'm not using it right now, maybe somebody else might want to use it while I'm not, and then I lend it to them, and th then it's a question of, okay, well, if I'm lending it to them, what do I get back? I don't get to use it right now. I'm, I'm the one who's de delaying the gratification, but should I get a return on that money? Right. This is where the time value of money exactly. comes in that you spoke about. Exactly. Yeah. So, 
uh, it's interesting because it's it's a it's an abstract idea, and that's why you know it really isn't necessarily intuitive. Like most people get what interest rates are, they hear about it, but they don't necessarily get educated about it. And so it's an achievement in the development of human civilization to say, okay, now I have excess capital or savings or uh, some money in the bank or money. I've got something I'm not going to use right now that can be put to productive use and. You know, long ago, historically, people didn't have the concept of being able to say, well, how are you making that abstract idea or that money? Uh, Money, you know, is in a sense an abstract idea. It did form from the need for people to say, I want to trade and I want to have a medium of exchange and a standard of account. All the the definitions that we've given before about what money is, what actual rational money is. But the use of money, the time piece of it, that time value of money and the time preferences and a crucial concept and I think this is what you're kind of getting at is risk you know if I how much am I going to get back will I get my money back if I lend it to you Mitch if I say I don't need to use my my money right now I've got a thousand dollars and I don't I don't need to use it or consume it right now and you have some great idea or maybe a need and you say I want your thousand dollars and I will borrow it from you Mike and at some point I'll pay back I'm making a promise this is where all the the financial terms come into place security promissory notes trust all those ideas come from this idea of having a contractual agreement that says you and I are bonded now in a contractual, mutually beneficial arrangement that says you've got a promise to me to pay it back and I'm trusting you, but there's a risk. Maybe you won't. Maybe you have some harebrained idea that you're going to use that $1,000 for and you'll piss it away. I won't be able to pay it back. So I should get paid and compensated for two things. One is the fact that I'm not able to use my own money right now and it'll be maybe a year or five years or 30 years in the case of a home mortgage or something like that. It'll be time that I'm giving up with my money and I may not get it back. I'm taking some risks. Those are two crucial concepts with regard to why an interest rate came about, why prices are put on money. And in one sense, they're the most important or the most far-reaching prices throughout our economy. Because if you think about it, I mean, if a person's buying a house on credit or if they're starting a business or even a consumer loan like Josh Hawley is concerned about, about credit cards, you know, I'm, I'm taking a vacation. All those things get priced based upon a general level of interest rates and a general level of risk. Now, the idea would be over time to have lower risk, more predictability, more people paying their money back and having that lower risk. But we don't. We know that that's not always going to be the case. There are, there are some people who are less reliable, less credit worthy than others. And so it's about, you know, how likely is this person, this business going to be able to pay me back? That's sort of, uh, you know, sort of a lay of the land with regard to what interest rates are. And I think, too, Mike, the idea is that a dollar today is not worth a dollar tomorrow. That's right. And conceptually, that's actually a crazy thing. It's actually hard to think about. But when we think about, you know, I could put money in the bank and let's just say (laughs) at a brick and mortar bank, even these days, a 1% return on my savings account probably wouldn't happen. But let's say I've got it in a brick and mortar bank making 1%. Well, I've got, let's say, $100 saved up in a year. I'll have $101. And so $101 a year from now is equivalent to me to $100 today. And that's where a lot of the risk premium idea comes from that you're talking about. But like you said, it's a major advancement in human civilization to to think about these things and figure it out. Yeah, and I was mentioning to you uh, before we started uh, recording, you know, one of one of my personal heroes, you know, a great defender of capitalism, Dr. Yurong Brook. He does a whole series of history of lending. Now he brings in a lot of the history of the the Jewish culture and why they weren't allowed to 
they weren't allowed to actually enter any other profession in many ways. And they sort of, in many ways, were in, uh, innovators in the idea of lending money. And that's where they became very competent. Now, that, that's a controversial statement in one sense, because people are like, oh, you're, you're characterizing Jews this way or whatever. But historically, this is just a fact. And he does a great history of how money lending started. And there were lots of great thinkers, great philosophers. For example, Aristotle, who's a hero, didn't really get that relationship with time value money. So it was truly an achievement of probably the Enlightenment in many ways to say, no, you can have this formation of capital, savings. Ex- I mean, think about it this way. For most of human history, people scratched the dirt and then died. You know, if, if they, they didn't live that long. You know, nasty, brutish, and short was the, the story of most human beings. And the idea of creating profit, having excess. This is something I've produced with my crops or my agriculture or, or my carpentry business or whatever. All the things that I'm producing for someone else, now I've got even more. I've got surplus. And having that idea of creating more than you need right now is profit. And then saying, okay, what can I do with that profit? And, and that, that began a whole cascade of being able to say, I can create more and I can take more risk. There can be capital formation to take even bigger risks for bigger projects. And that's what we ha- how we have incredibly advanced projects today, whether it's you know building a skyscraper or building large dams or any kind of big project comes from the ability that having pooling capital, having large pools of capital to take more risk with. But that all starts with this, this idea of saying, well, someone is had earned excess money and they didn't need to spend it today and they wanted a return on and it. And they didn't need to put it under their mattress That's either. Right. They wanted to do something with it. They're moving an asset to a higher valued use exactly. by giving it to somebody else. Yeah. I love talking about this, Mike, because, well, as you mentioned, uh, you know, in grad school, I talked about this and one of my concentrations was finance. But I, of course, I don't want to get too in the weeds. I'm glad you mentioned Aristotle, though, because people have been thinking about this idea of interest for a long, long time, even before Aristotle. There are actually uh, cultures and religious cultures today that still don't accept this idea. Well, and the Bible devotes quite some time to talking about interest rates in a few different places and exploring the idea of, you know, is all interest usury? You know, should you charge any interest at all to your brother? And and there's some, I'm not a theologian, obviously, but, you know, there's some question as to what does brother mean? Does that mean a fellow Jew? Does that, right, you right. Know, whatever. And but, that, that's what Iran gets into, and it's really yeah. fascinating. But the, the fundamental thing is that at that time, and even, again, in some cultures today, it's a controversial thing to say, wait, you're making time work for you? Wait, you can't do that. Time is God's. It's not yours. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you're cheating God if you're trying to make money work for you because of time. And that, that was sort of a controversial thing. And as I said, I, mean, I think it's not really the case too formal anymore. I think that Islam and the, there are Muslim banks and Muslim uh, organization, financial organizations who try to get around this whole idea of, of interest, charging interest, even though for them to have the, the kind of results that they want, accumulation capital, taking risk, getting a return on their money, it requires that. So they, they have all kinds of sort of uh, ways of getting around that, calling it something different. But but enough of the history. That that is kind of the the background, and it's it's a huge human achievement, achievement of civilization, and, and ultimately, I would say, Western civilization and the Enlightenment to, to to formalize this idea of contractual obligations and 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 formalizing the idea of time value of money concepts. Well, now that we've teed that up, Mike, I think we could all probably guess where you're going to go with this question, <laughs> but I'll ask it formally. So, is Josh Hawley's bill a good idea? No, of course not. It's a horrible <laughs> idea. And you, you, 
<laughs> you know, we I, I was asking you to be fair to Josh Hawley. I mean, the guy's interesting, notwithstanding his popular. I, I don't think he's a good politician. I think he's dangerous. And I know there are many people who are, might be on the conservative right who would think they'd be simpatico with my views, uh, who would might be going, wait, I thought Josh Hawley was a good guy. He's fighting for, you know, the America first crowd. And, and I'm a I'm a fan of America and you're a fan of America and so forth. I mean, he, he got his bones in the state of Missouri going after the pharmaceutical industry, I think. Well, yeah, he was the Missouri attorney general. And I don't know a lot about his, what he did there. But yeah, he's done some interesting things in his career. Yeah, and he's you know he's a smart guy, and he's good looking, and he's he's articulate, and that can be you know partly what makes him dangerous. You know, you can have demagogues like that in every party, and I would say he's in that case, especially given the fact that he's for such management by the government of the economy and intruding in people's uh, what should be voluntary exchanges. And it's interesting to see him you know side with people who would, who are you know definitely not perceived to be pro free markets or pro capitalism. And I think this is the problem with the the Republican Party in many ways right now is you've got a faction, a growing faction of people who are in favor of this industrial policy of saying, well, we're the ones who should be in charge of interest rates or whatever it is, or drug prices or whatever it might be. It's just another example of people saying, you know, they're responding to the short term versus the long term health of an economy and a culture. And you know, there, there's too many people out there who will say there ought to be a law. And before you know it, you're going down the path of someone wanting to make a law to say, yeah, the government needs to get involved in this because, oh my God, you know, people are paying too much for interest rates. Well, I, I don't know, obviously, how Josh Hawley would respond to what, what you just said, but I think maybe someone like Josh Hawley might say, you're right, I want government to be smaller, but culturally, this is where we're at. So in the meantime... Isn't it more humanitarian? I mean, 18% has got to still be more than enough money for these credit card companies to make. So why not just do that? Well, and the, the key is, you know, are they really making that? They, if a credit card company is saying, okay, our product is lending on usually shorter term loans, month to month credit card bills, and we're charging you explicitly 18% or 25% or whatever it might be, is that actually their return? And the, the answer is no, it's not their return. They have to write off a lot of that credit card debt because there are people out there who are deadbeats or f through some unfortunate circumstances aren't able to pay it back. And that's the risk that they're being compensated for by someone who will pay it back. They they look at the all the customers out there and say, here's what kind of return we should be able to get for our shareholders. And we have to charge this much because there's going to be a lot that we don't actually collect on that 20% or 25%. So their real return on assets isn't that high. Now, if it is, then that means they've, they've found a group of people who for some reason or another, are willing to mutually agree to saying, yes, I'm willing to pay that kind of exorbitant interest rate. And maybe it's because they don't have any other source of borrowing. They don't have anyone who will take that risk otherwise. Well, then one might say they don't have anywhere else to turn. So now these unscrupulous credit card companies are coming in, charging them 24% interest. These people have no other mechanism to get money. So now they have to go and pay 24% interest as their only way to get money. So, you know, we, we need to cap it, right? I mean, that's what people might say. They would say that. Actually, that's what Josh Hawley's saying. And, and my, my exact answer to them is that's bullshit. There's no, there's no need to cap it because there's no credit card company out there that has the force to say, you have to borrow this at this rate. There is, someone on, there is a borrower on the other end of the contract saying, I agree to that. Now, whether they've read the fine print or not or understand it, a free market, uh, you know, we've done a, a prior episode and people should listen to this one where we say capitalism is for grown-ups, grown right? It's for people who are actually, we're not going to insult you and say you're not smart enough to take care of yourself. You need to read the fine print. You need to read the contract that you sign. Now, 
are, are there uh, are there ways of saying are there consumer groups are there ways of saying let's protect people in, in the private markets absolutely but does government have the right to say everyone has the right to free access to money or access to money at eighteen percent does anyone have the right do you have a right to that and, and that's really what government's role is, is is about protecting rights you don't have a right to a certain to borrow at a certain rate. There's no such, I mean, if we start saying that, that you have a, that kind of right, and that's basically the argument that Josh Hawley would make by ca- capping interest rates, he was saying everyone has the right to borrow money at no higher interest rate than 18%. If we start doing that, if we start ma- micromanaging the economy, then you're going to see innovation go down. You're going to see that whole capital formation that's been the root cause of our wealthy society, our continually ever-expanding, growing wealth in our society. Um, you're going to ruin it. You're going to kill the goose that lays the golden egg. You're going to discourage capital formation. And more importantly, you're violating the rights of those people on both sides of the equation, the people who want to borrow at that rate for whatever reason that they decide they want to, and the people who are willing to offer the loans at that rate. Let's take a little thought experiment then, Mike. Let's say that rates are capped. And and by the way, it, it doesn't seem that Josh Hawley's bill is going to pass. So I'll say that, but who knows what's going to happen these days. But if they were to cap interest rates at 18%, what would you expect to see economically happen? Well, it's the same kind of thing we're seeing right now is the more state intervention you have in the economy, uh, and this would just be another example of that, the slower growth and potentially the the worse the recessions we'll have when we have contractions, but the slower sluggish growth that we'll have across the board. Capital will be misallocated. People won't be able to say, let me take my money and trade the way I want to with it. Whether, again, whether you're a bank or credit card companies that's doing the lending or whether you're someone, I mean, there are plenty of people out there who, who don't have the credit worthiness today who need to, they're big risk and they need access to capital. And there's someone out there who's willing to do it at the right price. And that price happens to be more than 18% in many cases. Those are the same people who might have, you know, and there are plenty of historical examples of people who really did borrow at, you know, exorbitant so-called usury rates in the past that got themselves out of the hole because they saw some risk that they wanted to take that was worth more than 20 or 25% to them, and they succeeded, and they built an empire. And now they have plenty of profits and capital themselves. They're the ones who actually took lots of risk because someone took a risk on them at a correctly priced uh, loan. So you're going to have much slower growth. The more intrusion we have in the economy, and this this would just be another example of one, where you're saying by force, you can't trade at the price you want to. In, in concept, this is no different. I mean, a concrete example, it, it, there's all kinds of differences. But in concept, it's no different in principle than a minimum wage. It's intruding on a trade. It's saying you are not smart enough or you're doing something that's wrong. We are smarter than you are, and we're going to decide for you how to make financial decisions or business decisions. And something that you very brief, briefly mentioned, you know, this idea that somebody wants to lend you money, but guess what? They don't want to lend you money at 18%. They want to lend you money at 20%. The implication there is that if interest rates are capped at 18%, that means if somebody wants to lend you money but not at 18%, that means you're not getting lent any money. That's right. You have, so, you have zero access to capital now. Right. And, and that means that the people who are lending have to find something else to do with the, the, the profits that they have or the excess capital that they have to invest. And that may mean they're taking risks that are, that are worse than 
what they would have otherwise done with you. Right. Right. Well, so you're again, you're you're misallocating capital, and and that's the crucial point is that you're shutting off the the ability for people people to borrow money at a certain rate given the right pricing for them. Now, if if there's no one out there, if there's no one out there who will borrow at twenty percent or twenty five percent or whatever the the credit card company is charging, they will lower those prices. Markets work. They will start to say, well, no, we we have to be. We still want to. We still want to loan this money, and we have to make a calculation. Is the risk there or too great? If there's no one out there borrowing money at those rates for credit card debt, then they will. That will create a supply and de- demand dynamic that actually begins to lower the price. Yeah, I I agree with you, Mike. And I think for me too, just from a a freedom perspective, you know, I pay off my credit cards every month, but I do have credit cards. But if somebody wants to go buy a five thousand dollar top of the line TV using a credit card at exorbitant APR rates. I don't want to stop you. Sure. That's a, it's that TV's important to you. You're you're willing to pay a lot more for it over time. Right. And that that that, that point of characterizing it as important. That's a value decision. That's a value decision that each individual should be able to make on their own without any coercion. They get to decide what's important in their life. If that, you know, state of the art brand new smart TV or whatever it is that they're wanting to buy is that important to them, who is Josh Hawley or the government to say no, you're not smart about your money. Now, we said it was insane, but we made a value judgment about ourselves, right? I was saying, and you were saying, I would never pay that much for a TV. TVs are not that important to me. Right. I'm willing to forego a TV. But maybe, you know, you need to watch every football game every Sunday. Maybe you got a big party. You want to make sure that all your friends can see every blade of grass on the field, right? Using this new TV. I mean, I don't know. That's not important to me. But if it's important to you, I'd knock yourself out. Right. And, and that's, that's what a free society is. And that's what a moral society is. A moral society is treating people as adults and agents to make their own value decisions, even if it's something that me or Mitch or Josh Hawley or Elizabeth Warren or Dave Ramsey wouldn't agree with. We get to decide. Now, if there's someone using force, then that's where the government's role comes in. And again, the government's sole role is to protect people's rights. You don't have a right to a TV at that price. You don't have a right to a loan at that price. You can find someone out there who has property, meaning the credit card company who has their property. They're the ones who have the capital to loan to you. And if you can convince them that you're a good risk, then more power to you. That's what it is to have mutual voluntary trades. Normally how I wrap up the episodes, Mike, is I say, well, what does this mean for a defender of capitalism? You know, what should we do? And I want to ask you that. First, I want to answer that question myself this time, because as we've been talking, you know, just get this idea that why it's so important about being an independent thinker and not being tribalistic, because a lot of what we've spoken about and what we've spoken about today in this podcast is this idea of populism. You've said it a lot. I've said it some. Populism these days especially goes across the political aisle, and bad ideas are not subject to one party or another. And I think for me, especially the topic we spoke about today, being a good defender of capitalism is recognizing that just voting for somebody because they have an R behind their name or a D behind their name is not going to just fix the economy or or fix ideas about how we can actually <laughs> make a freer more prosperous society. No, it's a deeper thing than our, you know, the RD or blue or red teams. Uh, and it's a cultural problem right now. We, we talked out the outset, you know, we have a culture that's leaning more towards short-term thinking, emotion-driven thinking. I want the TV right now. I'm 
I'm comfortable with this much debt. And that's, that's part of the problem is people need to, and, and, you know, there are natural consequences with markets. If they're allowed to, to function freely, people, people are rewarded or punished based upon good or bad decisions in a marketplace. And people who borrow at horribly high rates, according to my value system, oftentimes would, would learn their lesson by not doing that in the future. Today, when you have, you know, nanny states, nanny status like Holly trying to manage things for people, and mainly because they're just trying to seek power. They, they know that, you know, that can sort of buy votes. It's no different in, in concept than, you know, when uh, Biden was trying to forgive uh, student loans, right? It's or how the same about idea. the Grocky brothers back in Rome, right? That's right, exactly. That's yeah. a perfect historical example. You're pandering to someone's short-term, more baser instincts, and, and that's a bad thing. And I, I would want to remind people of what I said before about this whole idea of you got to be really skeptical when someone's saying, this is a bad thing and there needs to be a law. I'm You and I, again, might agree that borrowing money at that rate for us personally is a bad thing. But should we say we need to have a law? And the problem is you have these political coalitions that all of a sudden form around that. And then, you know, the the high-mindedness, Josh Hawley saying, we got to take care of the people out there. They're borrowing, you know, it's the credit card. They're accusing the credit card companies of being, taking advantage of people. Even that whole idea of usury is, is, is in a sense a false concept. Because originally, usury meant just lending money at interest, period. Yeah. And then, you know, people realize, well, that's how we actually get capital formation. That's how we get return on capital. That's how we get better investment and we get more flourishing. But we don't want to do too much of it, right? We don't want to have too much of that. So we got to cap it. Um, we got to be very skeptical of those people who are wanting to use the force of government to to intrude in people's individual choices and behaviors, unless there's a, a violation of rights. And I think these days we really need to be wary of populists infringing on capitalism in particular. Absolutely. I think that's a good place to end on. I, I think you're exact, absolutely right. That, that's that's one of the problems of our, our culture right now is that populism on both sides of the aisle, on all sides of the political aisle, is taking us down a path uh, that's against Americanism, really. I mean, the, the whole idea of Americanism is being free to make your own choices, agency, personal, individual rights, having the control and power to make your own decisions, living by Live and die by your own judgment. Um, and that's what has made America great, and we need to be back on that track. And that is really the purpose of the Defenders of Capitalism Project is to educate people more about what it means to be an advocate for freedom, what really freedom and rights mean, not just in a purely uh, commerce and economic and financial interest rate sense, but really more fundamentally the right of an individual for their own self-determination. Uh, well said, Mike. I don't have anything else to add. It's a good idea. I love this uh, idea for uh, talking about Josh Hawley, and, and obviously people should be advocating for the defeat of such a bill and really be skeptical about any populist, especially maybe Josh Hawley right now today. Thanks for listening to us. Hopefully you'll give us feedback. If you like this episode, if you got something out of it, pass it on, share it to other people. This is Mike Williams and Mitch Whitus signing off until next time with the Defenders of Capitalism Project.